0: Well, it's good to to be with you this morning. Um, If this is one of your first times, it's great to have you. My name is Jez. I'm one of the leaders here. Uh, Each week as a church, we have teaching from the Bible. And so if you have a Bible, we're in the Old Testament book of uh, Exodus, and we are looking at the Ten Commandments. Uh, Exodus 20, verse 4. I'll go back to verse 1. And God spoke all these words saying, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I Yahweh am a jealous Yahweh your God am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So this morning we're looking at commandment number two: don't make any idols. Although it says nothing about stealing them, so you can still be Indiana Jones if you want to. Um, Last week we kicked off looking at the Ten Commandments. Um, We saw that as a people, we're fearful people. We fear many things. Um, The trouble is we don't always fear the right things. We don't fear God. And the Bible says that we're to fear God. Fear God not as an enemy, someone to hide under the bed from, but fear God in the sense of being mindful of God, being reverent before God, living in awe before God. And the key from last week was we saw in, in verse 2, he says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery. And then he gives them the Ten Commandments. We saw that God rescued before, his people before he then went on to give them the rules on how they're to live. Which is the other way around from how many people think about God and the Christian life. Many people think that you need to behave your way into God's favour. That the Ten Commandments are there to tell you how to live and if you don't live up to them, God won't be pleased with you. He won't accept you. He won't forgive you. You won't get to go to heaven and all those things. But actually the opposite is true. That God rescues and God forgives. And then he gives some rules on how to live the balanced life. In the first five books of the Old Testament... Uh, commonly known as the Torah the ancient Jewish law and it's this law that God gives to Moses the mountain that he's reading before the people but he gives it after the rescue In in English the word Torah we we use the word law we talk about God's law but that's not necessarily the right word or the best translation of the word some Bible scholars say that instead of law instead it ought to be more like training that the law of God is more like the training of God for his people on how to live you see having healed, having freed, having loved his people, having chosen his people he then says now live like this in in that sense the, the Ten Commandments are like a coach's instructions for life and the commandments are divided neatly into two the first four are about our devotion to God the second six are about our life with other people Uh, They're about God and about community. And actually, it's quite juicy because it divides quite neatly into a nice little diagram. Let's put this up here. Um, So we have God and people. Next slide. And with God, the, the Ten Commandments are concerned with our thought life, have no other gods, don't make a false image, our words don't take the Lord's name in vain, and our deeds keep the Sabbath. But then when it comes to people, the order's reversed. So it says this with your deeds: It says don't commit adultery, don't steal, um, don't lie. And then with our words, it's don't bear, false wit- oh, sorry, don't bear false witness with our words. And then with our thoughts, don't cover. So the Ten Commandments are bookended with our thinking life. Don't take the Lord uh, sorry don't make any other gods and don't even desire things that other people have and in between that is concerned concerned our thoughts so our behavior and our speech where it gets really juicy in my opinion is next slide we have God and society essentially but the middle commandment the fifth one many people would say is the pinnacle of the commandments it's this one there we go oh wow I didn't know I had that kind of power this morning um this is about, uh, about honour your mother and father, that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. And honouring has to do with your thoughts, your words and your deeds. So the Ten Commandments frame for us quite nicely the, the priorities for living. So in the first instance we're to honour God with our thoughts, our minds, our deeds. Our second priority is we're to honour our family. If you're married, it's your husband or your wife and your children, you're to honour them. You're to honour our elders. You're to honour elders in the sense of our grandparents and, and those before them. We're to honour those in authority over us on a familial level. And then thirdly is our commitment to others. So that's our priorities for life. God, family, others. Often, we of course, we subvert that and we put work we become enslaved to our work and whatever our boss says is what we do. And that becomes our priority. And we think, oh, I know I need to honour God, so I'll try to go to church when I can and I'll give the leftovers to my parents or I'll give the leftovers to my family. So there it is. Our priorities. God family and others. We could just close there and say come on let's go and do that and we'll live fine. But I want us to engage with commandment number two. I want to see what it meant for them now, what it, what it meant for them, what it means for us and what the results are of disobeying it or of breaking it. So if last week was about um, having honoring God only, this week is about putting God first. Let's have a look at it again together. Commandment number two Exodus 20 verse 4 You shall make for yourself uh, you shall not make for yourself a carved image you shall not bow down to them you shall not serve them This isn't a prohibition against making art. Don't make nice pictures of the sky or pictures of the birds or of the fish. This is a prohibition about making things that we become devoted to and bow down to. And many of us, when we read that commandment, we're probably, as we read it, tempted to just skip on to the next one. Don't make any idols. Okay, I won't. Next one. I mean, who makes idols? But for the ancient Israelites, this was a constant temptation for them in their lives. And the reason God has to state it right at the beginning, so emphatically for them, was because of the world that they lived in. Everyone made images of their gods. Everyone was devoted to something. And for the Israelites it became a constant temptation, a threat and a trap for them. Some of the gods of the ancient world are well known to us. The Egyptian gods like Horus and Isis and Osiris and Ra... But in Canaan, in the land that the Israelites were to occupy, there are gods that are mentioned in the Bible. Uh, The god of Asherah, or of Baal, or of Dagon, of Shemosh, and Moloch. Gods that constantly tripped up the people of God in the Old Testament. And each of them had their own depiction, their own image, a thing, an object that focused people's attention and worship. Something that people fixated on, desired the object that it would give them, and devoted themselves to it. In the Old Testament, God makes clear for us how he feels about these objects. In 2 Kings, it says this, "'Because they have forsaken me and have burned incense to other gods, "'they have provoked me to anger with all the works of their hands.'" Therefore my wrath shall be kindled against this place and shall not be quenched. In Jeremiah 44, God says, You've seen all the disasters I brought on all the cities of Judah because of the evil they committed, provoking me to anger in that they went to serve other gods. And as we read in Exodus 20, I'm a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. We'll come on to why that was a bit later. But there's no question as you look at the Old Testament. Disaster came... Went into Craig Revel Horwood for a second there. Disaster, darling. Disaster came upon them because of their idolatry. Because they were devoted to things, to images other than God. They looked at icons or idols that they hoped would save them. In the New Testament, the concern about idolatry continues... Uh, Jesus' friend John finishes his first letter to his church and he says this in John 1 John 5.21. He says, Dear children, little children, keep yourselves from idols. The Apostle Paul writes to a church in Greece in ancient Corinth and says, My dear friends, keep yourselves from idolatry. And then to the church in Colossae he says this, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to the earthly nature, to sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. And in Paul's statement, you see there's, a, there's an understanding about uh, what idolatry is. That it isn't so much about the image itself, but about what it represents Greed, which is idolatry, desiring something, hoping that this thing in front of you would give you something that God has not permitted for you or not given you. The ancient idols that the people carried round for them, they would have devoted themselves and poured themselves out to and made sacrifices to. There's this one, a little fella called Baal, who caused the ancient Israelites much difficulty and trouble in the Old Testament. He was a god uh, who was considered to have made the crops, uh, the ground bear fruit in its crops and women have children. He was a god associated with fertility. That the people when they sacrificed to Baal were making sacrifices in the hope that their crops wouldn't fail, that they would have food, they would be able to survive and that their, their women would be able to have children, that their generations would continue and that they would be able to procreate and fill the earth and have more people to help till the ground and work hard. Uh, this other god, Moloch, is a terrifying god Um, you see people bowing down to him and this priest here offering Moloch a baby because Moloch was a God associated with knowledge of the future. He was a powerful God. And people would make sacrifices in order to attain security in the future. The sacrifices that he demanded that they made was that people would sacrifice their babies to him in the fire. And we make all kinds of sacrifices to to images and to idols even in that recognition that idolatry isn't really about the image it's about what it represents and what it offers us we start to see the perhaps the relevancy of this for us today it's not just an ancient issue but a modern one as well we make all kinds of sacrifices to images and to ideas Ideologies, things like communism or freedom. People make sacrifices, even the most extreme sacrifice of their life, in pursuit of this ideal, this ideology that's forced upon them. We stare, we fixate, we dote on the image in the mirror. We become fascinated with ourselves. We desire, through by looking at the image, a better version of ourselves. And we make sacrifices to get that better version of ourselves. Sacrifices of food or of money or of our own health in order to get us what we want. Sometimes people even commit suicide or murder in pursuit of an ideal and an image that they desire. This is very much a modern issue. We carry things that demand our time and demand our attention. They demand our love and eventually they push God out the way so that all we've got is this fixation with this thing that we hope will satisfy some deep craving within us. And it's at this point, ladies and gentlemen, that I want to reveal to you one of life's biggest mysteries, particularly if you're a man or a husband, you're going to be especially interested in this because I'm going to reveal to you now the contents of my wife's handbag. That's right. We're going to find out exactly what's in there because we all carry things around with us, some of them necessary and understandable, others of them perhaps distracting. Let's see what we've got. Sorry, I just put this on. Here we are. Okay. Going to rummage inside and see what we've got. Um. Gloves. I'm not sure why. There we go. came out. We ca- she's carrying around with her some first aid. Useful. She's very cautious as my wife. She's not in the room, so we can um, we can think whatever we want about her handbag, and she'll never know. So um, some makeup. Very nice. Don't know what that does. Um, makes her look beautiful. Yes, Jerry. Yes. Some chocolate, she likes her chocolate so she's carried around things that are, are sweet and that she likes. I'm not quite sure why that's in there. Just pop, pop that over there. Some, some chocolate again. It's very. Uh, what else have we got in here? Some pictures of the family, oh that's nice. Okay big frame that one, it's a bit bulky, another picture of the family, it's one of our children she hasn't got a picture of in her bag, wonder which one that is, the one she loves the least I suppose, Um, what's this, this is an old psychology handbook from, uh, I'm not sure why she carries that around, I first met Amy when she was at uni doing a psychology degree and people used to say that I was her case study and um, she just never, she's really liked psychology so so married it, Um, excellent, what else, okay so Health and not health and safety. Some medicinal things to keep her better, and some more chocolate, um, nappies as you might expect, and um, oh yes, eventually the phone, right, the phone there. And uh, what's re- re- reassuring to know is that there's a picture of me on the phone. Um, it would have been quite disturbing if there was a picture of someone else on it. But uh, there it is. There's a picture of. So that's the contents of her handbag. We carry things around with us, some of them necessary, some of them we think just in case, you know, you never know what's going to happen, so we'll carry some uh, some first aid round just in case, it's sensible. Uh, we carry around some things that perhaps we're concerned about, our image, make sure our appearance is okay. Um, the just in case goes a little bit too far when we you know, try to carry everything in the medicine cabinet because you never know what's going to happen. We carry around things that will bring us comfort, whether chocolate or whiskey. Uh, we carry around things that we hope will meet some deep-seated need in us for security or love. Pictures of those that we love and are devoted to. But we also carry around many things that are associated with our past. That are just bulky and heavy and that we needn't carry around with us but it's just a habit. I've just noticed that this chocolate box has just opened so I can give out some free chocolate to anybody who wants it. There it is. There it is. And now they're going to turn this into a pantomime. So there we go. Oh, oh Bill! <laughs> I'm so sorry, Bill. Bill, are you okay? Let me put one in your hand. <laughs> a nicer thing to do. I'm so sorry. They will all remember the day that the pastor threw some chocolate at a blind man. So <laughs> I'm so sorry. We'll go right at the back. Keith, there you go. It's for you. Okay. We carry around things that distract us, that, in, that require our devotion and our attention. Um, I'll mention the phone of course. And we would all be concerned if there was a, different, a picture of another man on there. Um, which perhaps makes sense of God's command about jealousy. You should have no other gods before me because it will provoke my jealousy. The Old Testament word of covenant is a a word that we associate with marriage. It's a a binding agreement between two people of devotion, of exclusivity. And from God's point of view, the covenant that he made with his people was a covenant of devotion and of marriage. It wasn't just about religious ceremonies and, and doing the things that this God, Yahweh, insisted on his people. To commit Adultery from God's point of view, to be devoted to things other than God, to make images that we desire and look to, to bring us things that God's forbidden or to bring us things that we don't trust God will bring us. To do that from God's mindset is to commit adultery. Adultery and idolatry for God are very similar. It's to desire things, to desire a person, to, to break a marriage contract between two people. We are creatures who are drawn to devotion. John Calvin, a reformer from the 16th century, says that we are, the human heart is like an idol factory. We make images and objects that we look to to bring us satisfaction. We're a species who crave intimacy and ecstasy. We crave intimacy and ecstasy. We want to feel like we belong. We, we crave attachment with others. We crave a, excitement. We crave distraction. We need things to bring us intimacy and ecstasy. And we devote ourselves to whatever we think will bring us those things to satisfy the longings of our heart. Another word for God is the word ruler. Ruler. We submit ourselves to rulers. We submit ourselves to things that we think will satisfy us or we give things mastery over ourselves. The American novelist, a man named David Foster Wallace, who uh, has died now, but he he wasn't a Christian, but he writes about idolatry in a way that's very accurate. He's very insightful. He says this, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, JC is Jesus Christ, or Allah, or be it Yahweh, or the Wiccan Mother Goddess, or the Four Noble Truths, or some infrangible set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly and when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. And we may be familiar with the idea that some people are like drains, others like fountains. In other words, some people drain energy and joy from you. Other people give you energy and joy. And to be fair, it's not a type, is it? It's just, there are sometimes, you know, on some particular days, at some particular time of day, whether it's BC or AC, it's before coffee or after coffee, we behave differently. After coffee, I might be a fountain. Before coffee, I might be a drain. But certain things drain you. Certain, and certain things energize you. Well, that's also true of the images we create or the things we devote ourselves to. Some things we devote ourselves to energize us while other things drain us. Some things enslave us, other things free us. I remember growing up on the school run, we used to always walk. This lady was always walking her dog when we walked to school. And it was before the days that they invented humanitarian dog leashes. And this dog had like a choking thing around its neck. And every day it would just be straining against the lead, practically choking itself, going, (laughs) wanting to go this way, and then wanting to go that way. And now, of course, they've invented these kind of safety harnesses for the dogs who get strapped into these things. And they kind of bounce around looking very free and secure and strong. Both dogs are enslaved. They're on a leash. One brings life and freedom. The other chokes the animal and nearly kills it. No one in this room is entirely free. There's no such thing as a free will in one sense. We're all devoted to something. We're all enslaved by or bound by something. The only question is, does the thing that you're devoted to bring you life and joy? Or does it restrict you? Does it enslave you? Does it rob life from you? Watching the guys up here play their instruments, they they look free. Um, if you've ever seen a concert pianist playing the piano he's free or she's free to move across the keys there's a a, a, something about the way they play their instruments and operate that is beautiful and life-giving and and they look content and free in what they're doing and yet to get that level of freedom has required years and years of discipline years and years of training or you might say years of years of restrictions as they've put on themselves chains for want of a better word growing up a concert pianist would have to make decisions an aspiring concert pianist would have to make decisions to not go out with their friends but to spend a night practicing and if you'd have seen them you'd have thought they look enslaved and yet that slavery has brought them a skill and an expertise and a freedom that's beautiful to watch and something that's really enjoyable for the individual some things we devote ourselves to rob us of freedom and joy some things give us freedom and joy The other problem with things that we're devoted to is that some things shrink us while other things expand us. Some things rob us of our dignity and value, whereas other things enhance it. As a church, we used to meet up at the school, uh, Seaford Head Upper School. Do you remember those days all of six weeks ago? And when we met there, we couldn't leave our youngest son, Toby, alone for long because in the canteen especially, if we left him alone for long, he would crawl his way under a table and would pick the chewing gum off the bottom and eat it. I think he saw his mother doing it at home once and has just (laughs) copied her ever since. And I would watch him do this and I would have to tell him, you don't eat the chewing gum from under the table and he would just you know, not really get it. And I would say, Toby, you are not a dog. You are a, chi- you are a human being. You are not an animal, my son. I'm still trying to convince myself as much as him, I think, that he is not a dog. There are some things that we devote ourselves to that essentially draw out our animal instincts and, and try to put upon us an identity of just animal. You're just an evolved ape. We're not just an evolved ape. We may well be an evolved ape, but we're not just an evolved ape. I'm not commenting on anything like that. I'm just saying we're not just a biological feature of this planet. We're not just an, an advanced species. We are people, humans, human beings, who have been endowed with the image of God. There's something different about you than the animals. You've been given a dignity and a worth beyond them. The, the theological term for it is you've been, given the, you've been imprinted with the Imago day, the image of God. And this is where it's quite interesting because God forbids his people to make an image of anything and be devoted to it. On one level, it's because God already has an image of himself on the planet. You know, dead bits of wood don't accurately represent the living God, so don't do it. It dishonors God. It makes a mockery of anything that's super normal in this world. Instead God has said the image of God on the earth, the icon of God that walks around, the idol of God on the earth is, in Genesis it says male and female, he created them in the image of God, he made them. Human beings are these creatures that have been given the Imago day, imprinted to be representatives of God on the planet. And so submitting to God's laws, the 10 rules for life, submitting to them is a way of enhancing the image of God in you it's him saying to the ancient Israelites and to his people saying you are more than I expect more of head up chin up you're a human being you're not just an evolved animal some things that we devote ourselves to shrink us they rob us of dignity other things expand us Being devoted to God expands your soul and makes you more fully human. And look at Jesus, who is the image of someone devoted to their God. And what do we notice about his character, the way he was and how he behaved He received party invitations. He was described as being full of joy above and beyond any of his companions or friends. He was known for his storytelling. He told stories about fathers and sons and sheep and birds. Talked about crops and kings. Jesus had his eyes wide open to the concrete world that we live in and yet was devoted to a God who created it such that he could enjoy and appreciate, belong, live in the world while not being enslaved by the world and being trapped by it, he was an expansive human being in that sense. Idols take life where God gives life, being devoted to your own comfort, carrying around things from your past, and constantly saying, "But this defines me, this is who I am, even being devoted to good things like family members and Id- to, to idolize something is to take a good thing, be it a child, a spouse." taking a good thing and making it an ultimate thing seeing this image is what i need whereas jesus what he did the way he lived devoted to god put everything else in second place god first family second others third he lived that priority out and the the reason it's such a problem is because idols they shrink you they rob life they enslave you and they kill there's this strange verse isn't there about inheritance Where God says, don't worship idols because if you do, you'll provoke me to jealousy. I'm a jealous God and I'll enact that jealousy on the third and fourth generation. And as we read that, probably if we've we've not read it before, if it was the first time we it, read that, I thought, that sounds very harsh and very strong. Long before the days of genetic science, the, the principle of inheritance was understood. What you do, you pass on inherently to your children. Now, the reason my kids look like me is because we understand genetics are involved, so that's why they've inherited those genes from you. But there's also characteristics about the way you live, the things you're devoted to, that you, by nature of just being devoted to them, they have an inheritance attached to them, that people around you, your family, those that live with you, your kids, they'll inherit whether you like it or not, whether you intend for it or not. Worshipping, being devoted to the things of the earth provokes jealousy in God because it's like committing adultery that ultimately robs joy, cuts people off from God to the third, fourth generation, he says. But the negative is true, but the positive is true even more so. Because he says, those that don't, but those that are devoted to me, they provoke my kindness to the thousandth generation. There's a disproportionate response in the heart of God when he sees people who are devoted to him, who are resisting the idolatry of the world and saying, I want him and his will for my life. It provokes a response of kindness in God. In that, we see a key to the character of God that you won't get from the world necessarily. You won't get from your flesh and just thinking about God. In that, we see that God is an abundant God who's lavish in his generosity and love. He's supernatural. I heard yesterday, it's it's quite fascinating. There's a couple of chapters in the New Testament that talk about spiritual or supernatural, you might say um, supernatural gifts that he gives to the church. 1 Corinthians 12 through 1 Corinthians 14. They're supernatural. They don't come from the earth. They come from God Gifts of prophetic and healing and different languages in prayer. um, Gifts and help that God gives. Chapter 12 talks about that. Chapter 14 talks about that. Sandwiched in the middle is chapter 13. Which if you've been to a wedding at all, you'll have heard read at weddings. It's the chapter of love. Love is patient, love is kind, etc. All of those things, including love, is a a response. All of those things are gifts that the lavish, abundant God gives to the church. Gifts, supernatural gifts, but also the gift of love. Because out of God, the most supernatural thing that you can do is to love other people. Your fleshly nature, like idols and images, they want you to be, they want you to be in on yourself and selfish and nasty and keep and preserve. They want you to be self-defensive, self-protective. God, on the other hand, is, he blesses to the thousandth generation those who are devoted to him. He's an abundant God. Almost as an aside, all of Jesus' stories feature this picture of God. He says, The Father, he's telling a story about a, a lost son. He says, The Father gave to this son who said, Can I have my inheritance? gave him the house and the estate and everything. He describes God as being a farmer who just lavishly scatters seed on the ground everywhere he goes. He talks about God as being a master who gives talents away. In every story, almost as just a kind of background aside, Jesus is picturing God as this lavish, abundant, generous-hearted, giving God. Idols take life. God gives life. In a moment, we're going to respond together by breaking bread. And I want us to, to grasp even this, that the bread and wine the act of communion that christians have done for thousands of years even this at its heart is an expression of this abundant god who gave in our society we have food so we don't think too much of it but in societies where there's little food or for much of history when christians were celebrating this living in societies and countries where they they weren't guaranteed a meal every day every sunday there was a feast the love feast the church would call it where they'd gather together, they'd share food, and the the pinnacle of it was the moment where God has shared stuff with us as well. He's given us an image alongside the human image of male and female. He's given us the image of enacting a symbol that reminds us that God is a generous God who gives. As we take the bread and as we drink the juice, it's a feast, it's a festival, it's a celebration. As we say, God is an abundant God who gives, who gave us The most precious thing he could, himself, his own son on the earth. Jesus' coming was just an extension of this God, the God who blesses to the thousandth generation. Of course, you behave like this, blessing to a thousandth generation. And the language of blessing sometimes makes us uncomfortable. We talk about God blessing, saying obey God's commands and you'll be blessed. Sometimes we feel that we recoil a little bit. Because we're aware of abuses that have gone on and going on in the church and in religious organizations and all over the world. Do this, manipulation techniques, do this, and you'll be blessed. You'll have a happy life. What is the blessing then that God is talking about? There is a real blessing of some material prosperity at times, there's no denying that, but the blessing that God promises to the thousandth generation as that they'll receive kindness upon kindness upon kindness. And we, when we take the bread and the juice, we are remembering the ultimate blessing that God's given. God offers you a clean conscience, the removal of your guilt. He offers you peace with himself so that you needn't live in this world restless and at war with him, searching for things from images and icons and idols that only he can give. We're going to respond to that God. And we've got a fair amount of time left this morning because I want us to respond to God and then approach him in worship using the gifts that he's given us perhaps to encourage each other, reading scripture, sharing prophetically what God's saying to us in the room as a response to the generous God who gives. That's why he says, don't make any images or any idols. Don't be devoted to anything other than me. Idols shrink Idols enslave, idols kill, but God expands and frees and gives life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you your nature is to give. You're a providing father. You're a father who provides for us all of our needs, but who also has provided for us the ultimate need, peace with God, a clean conscience. As we sit here Father before we take the bread and the juice and celebrate your gifts to us Father we examine our hearts the psalmist says search me O God see if there's any unclean way in me we search our hearts where have we turned good things into ultimate things what are some idols that we need to repent of to put down in their proper place. Help us to be people, Father, who have our lives ordered properly. God first, family second, community, work, others third. Help us, God. We recognize in us a craving and a yearning, a searching for things. And we do, we fill ourselves with distraction and busyness. Often to avoid us ever having to think about these things. In this silence, i would encourage you, just allow God to nudge you. Nudge you and say this, you need to put this back in its place. Your are depending too much on what that person says or on getting the right likes or approvals from social media. There's a difference between the conviction of God and the conde- condemnation of the enemy. Conviction says that's wrong, repent. Condemnation says you're wrong. The truth is we're not wrong, we're in Christ. We've been made new creatures Given a new nature, let's stand together and in your own time, there's bread and juice at the front and at the back. This is something that is for Christians. If you're not a Christian, you're not sure if you're a Christian. Often we'd say a Christian, someone who's repented, put their faith in Jesus and been baptized in water as a response. That hasn't happened to you. You can watch, listen to the band sing along, but this is a meal where we as Christians celebrate the lavish generosity of God in giving us his son. Let's do this together, church.